Did Jesus give the church a sacrament of confession or not? Carlo Broussard is next. Hello and welcome to Focus, the Catholic Answers podcast for living, understanding, and defending your Catholic faith. I'm Cy Kellett, your host. And a series of strange things happen in the 20th chapter of John's Gospel, particularly in verse 23. And these things leave us with a bit of a controversy today about what exactly did Jesus mean when he said to the apostles, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, whose sins you retain are retained. Did he mean that we are to go out and proclaim the gospel? And when people accept it, we can say, your sins are forgiven. And if they don't accept it, we can say, your sins are retained. Or did he mean something else? And what does breathing on them and giving them the Holy Spirit have to do with all of this? Here's what Carlo Broussard had to say. Apologist Carlo Broussard, thank you for being with us. Host of Catholic Answers Live, Cy Kellett, thank you for having me. Um, you guys all do that to me. Uh, the, <laughs> the, uh, you, you're the author of several books, one of which is Meeting the Protestant Challenge, mm -hmm. and you got a forthcoming book, which is also going to meet intellectual challenges posed to Catholics by Protestant folks. That's correct. Yep. Uh, but it'll be a little bit different. It will be different. And so it's going to be, what will be the form of this? These... Yeah, so whereas Meeting the Protestant Challenge was addressing objections that took the form, how can the church teach X right. when the Bible says Y, which is an alleged contradiction concerning right. the, our belief in the Bible and our, other, and our beliefs as Catholics, my forthcoming book is going to look at ways in which Protestants rebut counter object to the classic Catholic arguments that have been given yeah. from day one concerning the papacy, Mary, the saints, justification, etc. So we're going to look at those Protestant counters or comebacks and then learn how to respond to those Protestant comebacks. Uh, so that's sort of the format of the book. So we'll look at, for example, confession, what's the biblical yeah. passage we appeal to, how do Protestants respond, and how should we counter those counters? Right, yeah, so that's a little bit of what we're gonna do today. That's correct. So that we've, you've, we've laid we're gonna the groundwork. We're gonna get a little sample, a hint of what's coming hint. in the, yeah, we're wet the, the appetite. It's, an, uh, it's not named, though. The it's not, not named, named we're, so, still, so. we're still working on the name for the book. We, we're fixing to start the uh, editorial process and massaging the manuscript and doing all the fun creative stuff and then we're hoping to release it of uh, spring 22. all right uh fixing to start that's uh i uh, and notice i said fixing you didn't say fixing to start i did not no, say you're fixing. you've really elevated it you're <laughs> <laughs> that was intentional man all right so sacramental confession Yes. Um, one of the great gifts that Jesus gave to his church. And here's uh, the situation. It's m much like the other things you'll address in that book. There's a, a, a Catholics will go, there's a clear, airtight passage in the Bible right. that shows you that Christ instituted the sacrament of confession. And we go, why don't those Protestants <laughs> just believe it? Amen. And, That's and, a lot of people say that. But you. It's not enough just to say it's airtight. Why don't you believe it? We got to give more evidence. Right. Well, first of all, I think it's important that we identify what that passage is. Yeah. So that's John chapter 20, verse 23. And that's where Jesus tells the apostles on the night of the resurrection in the upper room, he breathes on them, gives them the Holy Spirit and says, if you forgive the sins of any, 
they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And so as you pointed out, many Catholics will say, man, it's clear as day. Why don't our Protestant friends get it? Well, there are many reasons why our Protestant friends will not buy that argument or assent to it. One of which is they offer an alternative reading of the text. So the idea is that rather than Jesus telling the apostles to actually forgive or not forgive slash retain sins, what he is telling them is that they are to go out and preach the forgiveness of sins. That's what Jesus means. So the objection goes. And the idea behind this is what it looks like in reality is that the apostles go out, they proclaim the gospel message. If someone responds to the message and accepts the gospel, then the apostles are to declare for them that God has forgiven their sins. Yes, okay. And you see how that's different than the apostles actually forgiving sins, right? Right, right. And, or if the apostles preach the gospel and someone rejects it, then the apostles are to declare that God has retained or not forgiven their sins. And so that's the objection that our Protestant friends will put forward, or at least an alternative reading of the text. Yes. And so, of course, that just raises the question, well, what reasons do they give? Yeah. Right. And but you will see that if you, if you go to any Protestant apologetic site, if it says, "What's what's happening in John twenty twenty three? That's the reading. They here's give. what the Catholics yeah. say, but this is what's really happening. And Correct. it will all. Well, I shouldn't say always, but the ones that I've seen have always said just what you said. It's the preaching of the gospel that Christ is uh, yeah. telling them to do here, and that will provide the forgiveness of sins. And then you can just say, "People, your sins are forgiven because you accepted the gospel, right. or they're not because you didn't." That's the interpretation. Okay, yeah. so. Um, um, they go to Luke's gospel in order to support this. Right, to justify this, right. the interpretation. Right. Yeah, so one reason uh, many Protestants give to justify this claim, that this is what Jesus means here, is looking to Luke chapter 24, verse 47, where they will say Luke is describing the same event and records Jesus to say, go out and preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Yes. And so operating on the assumption that what John describes in John 20, 23 is the same event as what Luke describes in Luke 24, 47, then they conclude Luke's describing for us what Jesus meant in John yeah. 20, 23. So you would lo- use Luke's way of telling it as kind of the key for understanding John's way That's of how it's often presented. Right. So... That's one reason that Protestants give to justify their claim for their reading of John 20, 23. Another reason that's often given is an appeal to the Greek text. And now we're not going to get too far into the weeds, but I'll just try to briefly state the objection. And that is, whenever Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, in the first part of the conditional statement, and then in the second part, they are forgiven. Yeah. The perfect tense is used there for are forgiven in this second part of the conditional statement. And a perf- the perfect tense in Greek suggests a past action that's completed yeah. and it's resulting in an ongoing present state of being. Right. Right. Okay. And so the, the, the argument is given that the present tense is used for are forgiven or retained, 
that suggests that God has already forgiven the sins or not forgiven the sins prior to the apostles declaring that sins are forgiven or not forgiven. Like some action, sins are already forgiven before the apostles are ever doing anything, Yes, right? Uh, and so the, they will often conclude a literal translation of the text could be, if you forgive the sins of any, they are already forgiven. Yeah. If you retain the sins of any, they are already retained. And so this is the second reason that some Protestants will give to justify their alternative reading so of John 20, so, so you might say, well, Luke gives us the key to understand what John is saying, and we can see right there in the syntax of the sentence right. that that's what Jesus so meant. One so one argument you, appeals to Luke. Yeah. What they think is the parallel version, right? And then the other argument appeals to the perfect tense being used in that second part of the conditional statement, when Jesus says they are forgiven, concluding already forgiven. Some action that God performed before the apostles are ever engaging in forgiving air quotes there yeah. and retaining air quotes. So um, we're going to explain, kind of dig into why a, a Catholic doesn't find those objections. Um, uh, successful. S successful, yeah. But one thing we probably could say here is that for the Catholic who's tempted to say, it's so dumb, why don't they just get it? Well, this is not dumb. These are it intelligent arguments. And that's one of the purposes of my book, Cy, and in which some of this material will be found, right? We're just giving a little hint here. But that's one of the purposes of the book is to try to address those Catholics who say, wow, it's so clear these Protestants must be dumb or something. No, yeah. that's not the approach we need to be taking. That Protestants actually have reasonable arguments in the face of Catholic arguments that from their perspective justify them remaining Protestant in the face of the Catholic arguments. Now, ultimately, we're going to conclude that those Protestant comebacks and those justifications don't work, no. but at least we cannot say they're just being closed-minded or they're stupid or dumb or whatever. No, no they're actually, they actually do have ways in which they can respond to these Catholic arguments. And it's important that we know that so that we, we can, can be respectful and charitable toward our, have the right approach toward our Protestant brothers and sisters, but also, too, to be able to engage those uh, rebuttals. Okay, so the, the most obvious reading, however, I would say this uh, in our favor, is Jesus gave them the power to forgive sins. He says, whose sins you forgive? That's right. So Tim Staples so, often <laughs> says, you know, if there's any bi if there's any passage in the Bible... That's clear. It's this one, right. right? Yeah. So we're not saying that their arguments are dumb, but we are saying, well, it seems clear, and we have reason to set, to to continue to believe that yeah. despite the arguments you made. So let's uh, start with Luke. Yeah. Okay. So why is that not convincing to you that look, Luke is describing the same event over here, and he specifically says, "Preach the forgiveness of sins." That's what Jesus was talking about. And the answer to your question is the assumption that it is the same event is what's problematic. So if we look at Luke, it is true that in verse 1 of Luke 24, he starts off on the day, on the night of the resurrection. He gives us a time cue in verse 1, on the first day of the week, right? And it's the resurrection Sunday. And then in verse 13, he gives us another time cue, that same day. Then in verse 33, he gives us another time cue, that same hour, the whole narrative from verse 1 all the way up to basically verse 43, 42 or 43, is all taking place on the same day. 
And we know that because of the time cues that Luke gives us. But what's interesting, Sai, is that when we get to verse 44, the time cues drop. And Luke begins to use the conjunction and writing, and then he said several different times in rapid fire narration, verse 44, verse 45, then verse 51, two, three, four, he's using, and then he said, and then he said, and then he said. So it seems as if he's summarizing events or things that Jesus told the apostles that took place at a time that was not on Sunday. He's sort of collapsing the time frame, right? And just summarizing things Jesus did and said. And so given the drop of the time cues and the rapid fire succession of the conjunction and seems to suggest that Luke is summarizing a series of instructions that Jesus gave the apostles and events that took place at some time other than Resurrection Sunday. So the question is, well, at what time would that be? Well, Luke gives us insight in Acts chapter 1. So first of all, if we look at Luke 24, if we look at 44 through 52, that context right there, there's a series of instructions that Jesus gives the apostles in which we find instruction, go out and preach the forgiveness of sins. So what are the other instructions? Go out to all nations and preach my name. Uh, preach first in Jerusalem, wait for the power of the Most High to be sent by my Father in heaven. And it's with these instructions that he says, preach the forgiveness of sins. Well, what's interesting, Sai, is that in Acts chapter 1, where Luke records again these same instructions that Jesus gives the apostles, the context reveals that Jesus gave these instructions either during the 40 days that Jesus was with his apostles post-resurrection prior to ascension or on the day of ascension itself. Right. So these are instructions Jesus gave the apostles not on resurrection Sunday, but after, during that time that Jesus is with the apostles prior to his ascension. So whenever we combine all of this data, we arrive at the conclusion that Jesus is giving this instruction to preach the forgiveness of sins at some point in time after Resurrection Sunday and not on the same day. And so therefore, we're able to critique the Protestant reasoning here and say, well, wait a minute, your argument's only going to work if this if is it's a, the same day. Right. Otherwise, it's two different events. Jesus... It, right. So it's, it, but it's it, not the same day. Right. right. We have good reason to conclude it's not taking place on the same day. So Luke's account is not a parallel version of what John's describing in John 20, 23. John's describing something different. He's describing something different. And therefore, you can't appeal to what Luke's recording to shed light on what John's recording in Jesus's words in John chapter 20, verse 23. Okay, so um, uh, um, is this what happens in John 20, 23 then? Are there other signs that we might look at and say, that's a unique event. This is not like that Jesus is doing something special here. It's not yes, like- there, there, there actually are uh, pieces of evidence to suggest that. But I think it's important that before we get to that evidence, that okay. further evidence of what's present in John 20, 23, I think it's important that we knock down okay, one the, more. the other right. reason yeah. that our Protestant friends give to justify their 
interpretation of John 20, 23. Which was that this is a past perfected action. So that Je- that's right. That Jesus says, who's, he doesn't say, whosoever sins you forgive, I forgive them at the same time. Or that it, he says, whosoever sins you forgive are forgiven. Right. Which, which you might say, well, that he's just saying they are, they've already been forgiven. You're just communicating that information to them. Yeah, that's the objection, right? Okay, so and how do we it, answer that? That's right. So... Once again, let's just summarize the objection. The argument goes, because the perfect tense is used in the second part of the conditional statement, it's referring to some action that took place before the first part of the conditional statement was fulfilled. Right. Right. So our statement is, if, if you forgive sins, they are forgiven. The argument goes, well, are forgiven is perfect tense. So that implies that some action took place before the apostles forgave. But that grammatical principle doesn't work, for example, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 5, where St. John records, whoever keeps Jesus' word, that's the first part of the conditional statement, right? If you keep Jesus' word, then you are perfected in the love of God. Now, whenever John says you are perfected in the love of God, the perfect tense is being used. Yeah, it's the same exact tense. It's the same exact tense, and you it's the are. same structure as John 20, 23. Remember, John 20, 23 says, if you forgive sins, they are, are forgiven. forgiven. Perfect tense. First John 2, 5, you keep Jesus' word, you are perfected in the love of God. Perfect tense shoes. Now, if we were to follow the line of reasoning of our Protestant friend subjection here, we would have to say, oh, well, I guess God perfected the person before the person ever believed in Jesus's word. Oh, yeah. That, right. I but see. But that's not the case, no, right? That's, that's not the right. point of what John's saying here. What John's saying is here, whenever you keep Jesus's word, that's when you're perfected. Right. So if that's the case here in 1 John 2, 5, similarly in John 20, 23, what Jesus is saying is that your sins will be forgiven. Your sins will be forgiven whenever the apostle forgives. Okay. Your sins will not be forgiven whenever the apostle does not forgive. Right? right. Yeah. And so we can appeal to 1 John 2, 5 as evidence that this grammatical principle that our Protestant friend is employing here in his objection does not work. No. So just because the perfect tense is used in the second part of the conditional statement, yeah. are forgiven doesn't mean that there's some action that God performed before the apostles are actually forgiven. Rather, what Jesus is saying is that upon completion of the first part of the conditional statement, when the apostles forgive or retain, the second part of the conditional statement takes place. The sins are forgiven, or in the case that the apostles don't retain or don't forgive, the sins aren't forgiven. Okay. So that's how we would respond to the second reason that Protestants would give to justify their objection that Jesus means the preaching of the forgiveness of sins. So the the Catholic says, "Hey, you, you got to believe this because this is here, here it is," and the Protestant says, "Nope. Here's a couple reasons why there's a different interpretation to that." Right. But those don't survive close uh, scrutiny. scrutiny. Yep. And so uh, then uh, maybe the Protestant person or another Catholic would like to know, okay, so how am I supposed to read uh, John 20, 23? Yeah, that's a great way to set it up because what that question is asking for is positive reasons to think that we must read it in a sacramental way. 
right? right? Yes. As opposed to the preaching of the forgiveness of sins. So it's one thing to knock down the reasons that Protestants give to justify their interpretation, but do we have any positive reasons to think that the interpretation is flawed, generally speaking, and also that this is the institution of the sacrament of reconciliation. So first of all, I think the first thing I would say here, Sai, is that there's no contextual support whatsoever for the idea that Jesus is commissioning the apostles to preach. That's just not in the text. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. Nowhere in the immediate context, or even if you widen the scope of the context out a little bit, he's not talking about preaching right here. He's talking about forgiving and retaining sins, right? Which leads to the second response, and that is to say the idea of preaching means something different than the action of forgiving or not forgiving, right? Those are two different actions to perform. Exactly. I often like to give the example, you know, if I tell my eight-year-old, eight-year-old daughter, Catherine, forgive Elijah, my 11-year-old son, forgive him for pushing you or saying something mean to you, right? right? I don't mean, Catherine, go up to Elijah and say, thus saith the Lord, brother, you need to repent of your wrongdoing, right? Let right. God strike you down. No, but now, she's awesome if she talks If that That's right. If she would say that, that would be phenomenal. But that's not what I mean. I mean, Catherine, don't hold it against them. You need to let it go. You know, he's right. saying he's sorry. Forgive him in that right. sense, right? So Yeah, don't go preach to him that he can be forgiven. Go forgive him. Go forgive him, at yeah. least in the ways that we can forgive right, right, yeah. as human beings. So preaching is essentially different than forgiving. So without any further evidence that we need to read forgiveness in an unnatural way, like preach, then we're justified in reading forgive sins to mean forgive sins and not preaching, right? Now, a third response is that very quickly, notice Jesus says it's the apostles who are the ones forgiving and retaining. Jesus doesn't mention God here. Now, granted, we believe that it is ultimately God who forgives sins, right? But the text does not refer to God as the subject of the action of forgiving and retaining. The text refers to the apostles. So, the Protestant interpretation here is failing to take that into consideration, okay? Now, they might counter and say, well, yeah, I agree the apostles are the subject of the action, but the action is the preaching of the forgiveness of sins, not forgiving. Well, we already dealt with that, okay? Yeah. Uh, but this, that response is directed to the idea, well, it's, it means God has already done something. Well, yeah. no, that's not what the text is saying. But I think even more profoundly here, Sai, is that this is something new. All right. This is something new in Jesus's ministry. Consider this. If all Jesus meant here were for the apostles to go out and preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins, then this would not be a new commission. Right? This would no. not be a new command. Why? Because he's already sent them he's out already to preach. Said, that's right. Yeah. Mark chapter 6, yeah. if my memory serves me correctly Sends out here. the 12, then he sends out the 70. Two by two, go out two by two. You have right. authority over unclean spirits. And he specifically tells them to go out and preach the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus already gave them that commission. So if that's all Jesus means here, go out and preach the forgiveness of sins, this would not be a new command. No, a this new is a review then. This is just a review of previous <laughs> right. work that's we've right. done. Yeah. But yeah. this is a new command, 
right? Yeah. This is something new. How do we know that? Well, first of all, Jesus never breathed on the apostles. So that's something new. This is very startling. <laughs> like that's, it's really, it's striking and weird. That's that, right. He's so, breathing on it, man. It's like, if you imagine that's like, man, I if you Jesus, don't want to just go Je past that. Like Jesus nothing happened. Good, I wonder if Jesus had good breath. <laughs> he did. <laughs> I'm sorry. He's the risen Lord. He did have <laughs> he good did. breath. Okay. Yeah. No bad breath from Jesus. Okay. So he breathes on them. That's something new. So yes. that indicates something new is going on here. Right. Secondly, he gives them the Holy Spirit. Jesus had never given the apostles the Holy Spirit yet. This no. is the first time. The Holy Spirit will come upon them again on the day of Pentecost, but this is something new here, giving them the Spirit. Thirdly, he never tells them to forgive and retain sins. This is new language. Right. right? Never has this come up. prior to in Jesus' ministry. So those are three details that are brand spanking new in Jesus' ministry, thus giving us reason to conclude this is a new command. And so right. therefore, we can conclude that Jesus is not telling them to go out and preach the forgiveness of sins. It's, so here's it's, just to summarize the argument. Yeah. If preaching the forgiveness of sins, not a new command. Right. But it is a new command. Therefore, it's not the preaching of the forgiveness of sins. But it is. But, it, but we could easily miss that this is something new because we have seen Jesus himself forgiving sins. Oh, so we might yes. go, oh, yeah, this is just part of what Jesus does. But he never has commissioned anyone else to do it before. So there's something here about, I mean, he, he certainly goes around forgiving sins. Yes, he does. Um, and that's a key point. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Because this provides us more evidence for our understanding that what Jesus is commissioning the apostles to do is to actually forgive and not simply preach the forgiveness of sins. Right. Because notice Jesus tells the apostles, as the Father has sent me, I send you. Yeah. Well, how did the Father send Jesus? What did the Father send Jesus to do? To preach the forgiveness of sins? Yes. Yes. Right. But not just that. Right. The Father also sent Jesus to actually forgive sins. And yeah. Jesus is telling the apostles, I'm sending you to do the same thing in this ministry of reconciliation. Does it involve the preaching of the forgiveness of sins on behalf of the apostles? Yes. We get that from Luke 4, 24, 47. Their ministry did involve the preaching of the forgiveness of sins. But John is revealing to us that their apostolic ministry of reconciling people back to God involved something else, namely right. the actual forgiving and retaining of sins, which is a revelation of the sacrament of reconciliation. And it's a it's a, a really a beautiful image of what Jesus is is commissioning people to do, not just to um, uh, kind of refer to him or make sure people know about him, although that's extremely important. And that's essentially tied to what they're doing. But to but to do as he does. This is, this is what Jesus has done here. He's, a, he's built a church. He's called them out. He's, and now he's commissioning them to do as he has done. Just like Jesus, remember Jesus told Pilate, for this I have been sent into the world to testify to the truth. Yeah. He sends the apostles out to do that. He sends right. us all out to do that. Sure. But I think we have good evidence in the New Testament that he sends the apostles to do that in a very special way, to have sort of that doctrinal authority and authority to teach. So too, in the sense of reconciling people back to God. We all, as baptized Christians and confirmed Catholics, have a calling to reconcile people back to God. 
we need to go about and convert the sinner, right? And preach the good news and invite people to communion with Christ. Uh, but the apostles have a unique role to play in reconciling people back to God. And John 20, 23 provides us the answer to the question, what is that unique role? Namely, to actually forgive sins and to retain sins. Of course, that forgiveness of sins is ultimately coming from God, who alone has the power to forgive sins. But according to this revelation, Jesus has willed to associate his ordained ministers in that ministry of forgiving people's sins. Okay, so this, I think, might be the kind of the last objection, though, would, would be, okay, even if I go completely with you, Carlo, I, okay, I, I get it. Jesus does something new here. He breathes on them. He gives them a new command. They have the power to forgive sins, but that could apply to all Christians. Maybe, ah, maybe yes. he's giving that power to the whole church. Yeah, very, very good question there or objection, however you present it. A full response, we don't have time here in our you know, conversation here to give a full response, so I would refer our listeners and viewers to an article that I wrote for our, our Catholic Answers magazine online. I think the title is something like, Not Every Joe Schmo, just type in Joe Schmo, it'll come up. <laughs> Not Every Joe Schmo Can Forgive Sins. And I give a detailed response to this objection, giving textual evidence that the disciples mentioned in John 20, 23 refer only, refers only to the 12, okay? Mm -hmm. And that gets into the weeds and looking at the text, et cetera. But I can say this, generally speaking here, Sai, is that the idea that what's going on here in John 20, 23 applies to all Christians is ta um, takes effect or has traction if and only if what Jesus is telling them is to go out and preach, right? So our Protestant friends are only going to assert that this— Oh, I see, yeah. Normally, generally right. speaking, I think it's safe to say that our Protestant friends are only going to assert this applies to all Christians because they already believe this is about the preaching of the forgiveness of sins, which makes sense, right? If that's all it is, well, then, yeah, it applies to all Then everybody go out and preach, yeah. So, but— Given what our conversation here today, we've given reasons to say it is not the preaching of the forgiveness of sins. Rather, it's sacramental confession. So our argument is, if sacramental confession, then it doesn't apply to all Christians. It is sacramental confession. Therefore, it doesn't apply to all Christians. It's unlikely that our Protestant friends are going to say, okay, sacramental confession— but we're all absolving people of sins. You might have a few here and there, and that's when I would refer to the article, who would say, yeah, I have the same, pre the same power that the priest has to absolve your sins, brother. Yeah. <laughs> there might be a few here and there, but it's highly unlikely that the majority of Protestants are going to take that view. Yeah. So given that we can prove this is sacramental confession— well, then it follows from that that it's not going to apply to all Christians, but apply only to the select few that Jesus is giving the commission to, namely the 12. And then, of course, by way of extension, we would have to give argument for apostolic succession, that they would transmit that authority uh, to other men who come to possess the same apostolic office that the apostles possess, known as the episcopate, which is the office of the overseer or the bishop. And the the... That I don't know if there's more that you want to add, but I just thinking about all that you've said, the 
the consequence of this gift that Jesus gives, this amazing power that he bestows on the apostles, uh, is that not just the people living at the moment that Jesus was living Good point. can hear the words of forgiveness, but all people for all times can hear the words um, of forgiveness. Yeah, this is another objection that may be posed by our Protestant friends. It's possible that a Protestant could say, okay, I'll concede that Jesus gave the apostles the authority to forgive sins. And perhaps in the first century church, while the apostles were still alive, that's how people ordinarily received the forgiveness of sins. But given the fact that they all died, yeah. that authority no longer is with us. So the paradigm has shifted. An initial response to that is, well, that's a positive claim, which is going to need justification. And given the principle of sola scriptura, a Protestant who's working or operating on that principle, they're going to have to give biblical evidence that Jesus intended For or the apostles, the apostles. That's right. Yeah. Or the apostles taught that the paradigm changed yeah. and that we were no longer to receive the forgiveness of sins through the apostolic ministry or their successors, right? Right. But that's nowhere to be found in the New Testament. Jesus nor the apostles ever give us that sort of instruction that the paradigm changes. So a Protestant who's operating on the principle of Sola Scriptura would not be able to make that argument because there's no evidence that the paradigm shifted, thus leaving the paradigm given and thus reasonably concluding, well, that must be the paradigm to this day, and therefore looking for the successors to the apostles who have that authority. And I mean, just intuitively, like you said, you know, why would Jesus set it up that way for the Christians of the first century, yeah. but not will that paradigm of receiving the forgiveness of sins in ordinary ways for all Christians, right? right. I mean, if Jesus gave that great gift, if he saw it as such a good to give his people in the first century, well, then surely that's a good... That he wants to keep communicating. That's right, people. for all of us, of right. all centuries, for all his family, right? right. Yeah. And so those are a, a couple of initial responses that we could make to this objection. And then, of course, we could look at the early Christian testimony and provide positive evidence from the writings of the early church fathers that they actually believed the successors to the apostles, namely the bishops, had the authority to forgive sins. So, for example, St. Hippolytus, about AD 215, whenever he, in one of his writings, when he's giving instructions on how a man is to be ordained as bishop, by a bishop, part of the ritual prayer is invoking Jesus to send down upon the newly ordained bishop the same spirit that he gave his apostles, the spirit of the high priest who has authority to forgive sins. And so the ritual explicitly states that through the power of the spirit that's being given to the newly ordained, that the newly ordained bishop has the authority to forgive sins. And that's early third century. So, and we could, of course, provide other evidence, but not only do we have general arguments to show the unreasonableness that the paradigm would change, and thus the authority to forgive sins continue for the successors to the apostles, but we actually have positive evidence from the early Christian community that they believed such power was transmitted and continued. Sounds like we have very good biblical and historical evidence uh, for the establishment by Jesus himself of the sacrament of confession. Indeed we do. All right. Thanks, Carlo. Thank you, Sai. 
From all of what Carlos said, the part that frankly is most convincing to me is that Jesus behaves in ways here in the 20th chapter of John's Gospel that he never behaves anywhere else. We see him forgiving sins, but he never instructs people to forgive sins, his apostles to forgive sins, other than right here. Where else does he breathe on anyone? Where else does he say, receive the Holy Spirit? This is a unique moment. And it's a unique moment because the sacraments are full of power. The sacrament of confession is full of power. And the gospel writer, John, and Jesus himself don't want us to miss that this is an extraordinary moment, one in which a whole new thing is given into the world. Priests with the power, the real power to forgive sins. Uh, Again, I'm Cy Kellett, your host. We're always glad when you join us. We're also glad when you send us email. You can send it to focus at catholic.com, focus at catholic.com. If you would like to support us financially, we do need your help to keep doing what we do. Just go to givecatholic.com, givecatholic.com and give in any amount. Just leave a little note says this is for Catholic Answers Focus. If you're listening on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher or any other podcast service, don't forget to subscribe so you'll be alerted when new episodes become available. And if you'd be willing, please give us that five-star review and a few nice words to help us grow the podcast. And those of you who are watching on YouTube, I think you know how this works. 131,000 of you are subscribed now, but let's try to get it up to 200,000. If you're not subscribed, right down here, just like and subscribe. We'll see you next time, God willing, right here on Catholic Answers Focus. Focus.